If you uh, remain with us, we'd encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, um, to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Our passage is Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 to 20. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, then you can certainly follow follow along on the screens or um, uh, in your bulletin. As you're turning there, uh, I want to set up a little bit about what I want us to look at this morning. Uh, Sometimes when we approach the Bible, when we approach the Scriptures, I think we have to admit that we can find it hard at times to relate to. And what I mean by that is the Bible, after all, is written in a specific time and a specific place uh, that is remarkably different than our time and and place. Uh, It's written in a different language. Um, It's written in different customs. And so often when we approach the Scriptures, we wonder, what does all this have to do with my life? What does all this ancient writing have to do with my circumstances? I also think sometimes it becomes a challenge when we look at some of the characters in the Scriptures as well. Sometimes the characters in the Scriptures are a bit hard to relate to. If you've been uh, with us the past couple weeks, you know that we uh, have spent some time in the Old Testament. We've been, uh, we looked at uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis, and then we looked at uh, Daniel, obviously, in the book of Daniel, and we saw these just amazing men of faith that, if we're honest, we look at them, we say, they're, they're amazing men of faith, but boy, are they sometimes tough to relate to. They're presented to us as such paragons of faith and virtue. They always seem to do the right thing at the right time. Their faith is so strong that sometimes it seems out of reach from us normal people, right? And so that's why I'm thankful that the scriptures also give us some other examples, some other very relatable characters. And as I think about the scriptures, uh, no character has been more relatable to me in my walk of faith uh, than Peter, who we read about in the gospel. Peter has these tremendous moments of faith where you look at him and you're just so impressed with what he's done. And then he has these profound moments of failure as well. And you wonder, why did he do that? What, what, what made him think to do that sort of thing? And so what he does for us is he puts a human face on the walk of faith. He shows us that often faith isn't just a straight line that looks like this. Uh, faith isn't always a gradual progression that looks like this. Instead, faith is full of ups and downs. And so what I want us to do this fall, at least for the next couple weeks, is to spend some time looking at the ups and downs of following Jesus, because that is a very relatable thing. And we're going to look, through, look at these ups and downs through the life of Peter. So this morning, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to be reading verses 13 and uh, from 13 to 20. Two other gospel writers record this as well, Mark 8 and Luke 9, but we're going to look at uh, Matthew's telling uh, of this story in Matthew chapter 16. So listen to these words. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures, that it's full uh, not just of, of beautiful teaching, but it's full of the good news of the gospel. That it's not just full of great stories, but also characters who describe for us what the life of faith is all about. So I pray for us as we think about what it means to follow you, that you would give us your scriptural understanding of what it means to have a life-giving relationship with you. There's anybody here for the first time making, coming to terms with what it means to follow you. May they see your truth. For those of us who have followed you for a long time, may you remind us of the true nature of what it means to be your children. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the Gospels uh, present to us really the, the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And what you discover as you read the Gospels is that when it came to Jesus' popularity, uh, it really ebbed and flowed during his public ministry. At times, uh, the crowds that were around him were massive, numbering in the thousands. Just think about when he fed the 5,000 people. Uh, There were a lot of times where people just were surrounding Jesus, hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. And Jesus, at, at times, just could not escape the crowds no matter how hard he tried. It was hard for him uh, to get a moment's quiet because so many people were around him. But other times, the crowds weren't so big at all. There were times where the crowds had thinned down to just a few. And in fact, we know at the end of Jesus' life uh, came the loneliest moment of all, when he hung on the cross. At that moment, he was forsaken by most of his friends, He was mocked by the crowds that were around him, and what the gospel tells us is that even in that moment, he was forsaken by God the Father. You can only imagine the profound isolation and loneliness that Jesus felt as he hung on the cross on our behalf. And so as you come to the gospels, you see this. You see that the crowds ebbed and flowed. One day, Jesus's popularity was there. The next day, it was gone. But what we also learn is there were about 12 men, 12 disciples, who seemed to stay with Jesus pretty much through all of it. We know that they followed Jesus for three years. Uh, They ate with Jesus for three years. They lived with him every step of the way. Uh, They watched Jesus as he performed miracles from town to town. They heard all of his teaching. And then after his death and resurrection, Jesus ascends back into heaven. And these 12 disciples set the world on fire for the message of the gospel and for the kingdom of God. They followed Jesus with their lives. The compass of their lives was no longer around themselves and their own desires and their own wants Instead, it was centered on their Savior. And so they become guides to show us 
what it means to follow Jesus. And then we come to Peter, who I love. Peter was the most bombastic out of all of the disciples. And what Peter shows us is that following Jesus is full of ups and downs. What I want us to see from Peter this morning is is really three things about what following Jesus involves. It involves a confession. It involves a, a calling. And then finally, it often involves some correction as well. And so whether you're sitting here considering what it means to follow Jesus for the first time or whether you're sitting here and you've spent a life following Jesus, we always need to be reminded about what it means to orient our lives around Jesus Christ. So let's first look at this idea of confession and how that fits into following Jesus. Our passage tells us that Jesus is walking on the road with his disciples and they're having a conversation. And good conversations like this um, were never wasted on Jesus and always the best conversations tend to happen while we are on the road. And what our passage tells us is that Jesus looks around at his disciples, these 12 men and the few others that were gathered there, and he asks them a question. He says, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? It says that in verse 13. And of course, the disciples uh, answer him with all sorts of multiple theories about what the crowds think about Jesus. Most believe him Uh, to be a prophet, someone like Jeremiah or John the Baptist or Elijah, one who points the way to God, uh, one who should be listened to. But what Jesus does next is important. He moves from the objective, who do the crowd say that I am, to the subjective. He looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you say I am? I imagine the disciples at this point are sort of looking at one another, uh, waiting for someone to speak. Who's going to be the first one to answer this question? I imagine a bit of pause or a bit of silence here because nobody, after all, wants to say the wrong thing. And probably many of them at this point in the journey aren't really sure exactly who Jesus is. They've just sort of been along for the ride thus far. One wonders, did they realize at this moment just what a profound question they were being asked by Jesus? Because it was a profound question, and the question is just as profound today as it was in Jesus's day. You see, when we come to that question, we can obviously consider that question objectively. Who do people today say that Jesus was? Now, some would agree with the disciples that he was a wonderfully, uh, wonderful religious figure, uh, the founder of the Christian religion. Uh, some would say he's a, a, just a wonderful teacher who taught a lot of morality and emphasized the ethics of love. Some would say he's a, a beautiful example to all of us of grace and compassion and sacrifice. And these are all good answers to that question, and we always feel very safe in answering that question, at least in an objective sort of way. But Jesus never wants us to stay in the objective. His eyes peer deeply into our hearts, and he asks each one of us, who do you say that I am? Perhaps this question is, is so profound because it's just so life-changing. 
Because if Jesus really is who he says he is, if Jesus really is God in the flesh, if he really is the Son of Man who comes to rescue humanity, then the implications of that fact are far-reaching. In fact, if Jesus is who he says he is, then it changes everything. Not just some things, it changes everything. It changes everything about our lives and what you and I are called to do. And because it changes everything, this question that Jesus asks at times can frankly be a very scary question. But perhaps it is the most profound of all questions. And God bless him. Good old Peter, in this instance, good old Peter, he gets it right. When everybody else pauses and looks at one another, Peter, as bombastic as he always is, he blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. See, Peter was saying Jesus isn't just a moral example. He isn't just a prophet or a system of ethics or the behaviors of love. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And if that is true, if that's true, then we can't ignore him, nor can we compartmentalize him. If that's true, we can't simply reduce him to being a great teacher or just a moral example If that is true, we can't leave him in history as just someone who lived and founded a new religion. If all this is true, then it changes everything. If it's true, nothing will ever be the same again. You see, I think the disciples at least understood partially the implications of this claim. And Peter, probably at this moment, is just really happy that he got the right answer to the test, right? That he answered the question well. He gets an A. But Jesus tells him that even this truth about himself was revealed to him by the Spirit of God. And so, who do you say that Jesus is? Perhaps it is safer to leave him in history. Perhaps it is safer to conclude that he was just a great teacher or just a moral example. Perhaps it is easier to simply compartmentalize him as just another religious figure. But to do all those things, to do that, is to walk away from the true source of life itself. To reject Jesus as the Messiah, as who he claimed to be, to reject Jesus as the Messiah is to reject life itself. And so who do you say that Jesus is? You see, this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is one of the first steps to following Jesus. But what we also see is that with this confession comes a calling. It comes comes to this second piece of what it means to follow Jesus. It brings with it a calling. Look at verse 18. He turns to Peter and he says this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there's been a lot of controversy over this passage and the history of interpreting a passage like this. And I don't want us to get really lost in the weeds of all that. 
Uh, some thoughtful Christians in history have read this and they've uh, tried to identify a very unique role to Peter through these words. And, and after all, Peter uh, is, his name actually does mean the rock, and that inspires much of what Jesus is saying here. And I do think that Peter was a unique leader. We see him doing amazing things later on. Uh, I do think the role of apostle was a unique role in time and history and redemptive history and the unfolding of the gospel. And I do believe that there is a calling here, but I don't believe that that calling is unique to just Peter and his role as an apostle. Because I believe that the confession that Peter declared, that confession is in and of itself also a calling. That these two things, calling and confession, can't really be separated from one another. Because to truly confess this about Jesus is to call our lives to something that is different. It isn't just something we say. A confession isn't just something we say. It involves how we think. It involves how we behave. It involves how we act. It isn't just simply something that's sort of cognitive as if we were just sort of thinking people out there. This confession is a full-bodied calling, a full-bodied confession. That confession that Jesus is the Messiah is something that catapults his disciples into a new life. And the same is true for you and I. Just think about Peter. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. That was his job. That's what he did as a profession. He spent his days on the Sea of Galilee uh, working with his hands. Uh, His skin was probably hardened by being out in the sun every day. Uh, His hands were probably calloused from working the nets each day. Uh, His body was the tool of his trade. And yet once he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, in many ways, all of that changed. All of it changed. At one point, Jesus even looked at Peter and said, you are now to be a fisher of men, a fisher of men. Why did he say that? Because Peter's confession was in and of itself a calling. And the same is true for you and I. Jesus might not call you Uh, to a new vocation or a new job or a new profession, but he will call you to think differently about your vocation. Jesus may not call us away from our families, but he changes the way we define that word, family. Jesus probably won't call you away from your giftedness, but he will ask you to use your giftedness in a different way. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just whisk us off into heaven once we truly understand and believe the gospel? And I think the answer is he doesn't do that because when we embrace this gospel, we get a new calling. We get a new job to do. And so these first followers of Jesus were called to orient radically their lives around Jesus and his mission. They were called to spread the good news of the gospel because their confession wasn't just a hollow confession. Their confession came with a calling, and the same is true for you and I. And so let's be really honest about what we're talking about here. 
if you don't want your life to change, if you don't want it to change, if you want it to stay just the way it is, then my advice would be don't trifle with Jesus. Don't trifle with Jesus because he is in the business, not just of bringing life, but that life often means bringing a disruption. It's a beautiful disruption, but it is a disruption nonetheless, nonetheless, because that confession comes always with a calling. The confession is a calling. Finally, what I want us to see here is that, that often following Jesus, it comes with a confession, it comes with a calling, but at times it also comes with some correction as well, some correction. We, we read the Matthew passage here, um, but, but Mark and Luke also record this conversation. And if you go to the, the Mark conversation of this in Mark chapter 8, you'll realize that this discussion keeps going after what we read in Matthew, and the discussion doesn't go so well for Peter as it keeps going throughout. Uh, Peter was really flying high after his, his brilliant confession here. He got an A on the test, and uh, Jesus continues with his teaching, and Jesus starts talking about what it means that he is the Messiah, what the implications of that mean, not just for the disciples, but, but for the rest of their path as they follow Jesus. And Mark tells us this, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said all this plainly to his disciples. And catch this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I read that this week and I just thought, poor Peter, poor Peter. One minute he's doing so well, and then he crashes and burns. He fails before Jesus. So what is happening here? Well, Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, what it means that he is the Messiah. He's teaching them that it means for him that he must suffer and be rejected. That at one point, he will even die because he is the Messiah. And Peter can't believe what he's hearing. Uh, this is all just too much for Peter. And he pulls Jesus and says, says, no, Jesus, this can't be true. This isn't how all this works. This can't be true. What is Peter saying here? Well, Peter had a picture of the Messiah and what the Messiah was supposed to do. And Peter is saying here to Jesus, Jesus, this isn't my picture. This isn't my plan of what this is all about. In fact, Jesus, you've got this all wrong. And I think I've got it all figured out. Poor Peter, right? He got a lesson at that day. Well, friends, as I've looked at Peter, I've thought, you know what? You and I, we're not that different, right? We're just like Peter. We have a tendency to set our minds on the things of man, just as Peter did. We tend to have a wonderful plan for our lives, and what we want to do is to have God get on board with that plan and execute that plan to perfection for us, don't we? Why do we want that? We want that because we think, frankly, our plan is better than the plan that Jesus has for us. 
especially when it seems as if this Jesus plan is full of a life of suffering and rejection. You see, what we want to do is impose our agenda on God rather than submit to his agenda for our lives. Uh, One commentator wrote this. He said, we must be careful not to project our aspirations onto Jesus. We cannot correct Jesus's teaching to make it suit our own prejudices. We cannot put him into non-religious categories that allow us to evade the claim that he makes upon our lives. You see, what we want to do is we want to make all this about us when really it is all about him from start to finish. And that's why following Jesus sometimes means for us a bit of correction, just as it meant for Peter in that day. Jesus needs to constantly be in the business of redirecting our hearts away from ourselves and our plans and instead invite us graciously and compassionately to follow him. And so we see the ups and downs of what it means to follow Jesus. We see that sometimes Jesus needs to kick us in the butt when it comes to following him. We see a confession. We see a calling. We see a correction. And all that to remind us of this. Once we identify who Jesus is with our hearts, it changes everything about us. And with that comes a new calling. It might not be an easy path. In fact, it almost certainly isn't an easy path. But what the gospel reminds us is this. It is the only path to experience true life. Let's pray.